You're listening to The World Transformed. This is a talk by George Monbiot, Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis. So as I was walking towards the polling station on June the 8th, I was overwhelmed by this weird feeling. It was a strange, sort of disturbing, tingling feeling. I thought maybe there was something wrong, that it presaged some sort of collapse or something. And, and I was trying to work out what this was. And it slowly dawned on me as I got nearer and nearer to the sort of the, the gaping door of the polling station, that it was that thing I'd read about, that they talk about in books and films and stuff. You know, that um, hope, that was the one. <laughs> And it had been so long since I'd experienced it that I had no idea what it was, this thing which had struck me. Because over the, the well, in fact, that, was, that day was, I voted for the fourth party in 10 years. That's how desperate things had got. Now, now none of them were actually UKIP. Um, uh, I'd voted for the Greens, I'd voted for the Lib Dems, I'd voted for Plaid Cymru, and at last, I was coming back to Labour. I'd been unable. I'd spent years, literally years, documenting the private finance initiative, fighting the Iraq war. I mean, not fighting the Iraq war, sorry. (laughs) Fighting fighting to try to stop the Iraq war from happening. Um, uh, Fighting the destruction of hope, the triangulation which made politics an almost pointless exercise. And I just couldn't vote anymore for the Blair and Brown governments. I just couldn't find it in myself to do so. And I found the hope crushed out of me. And so I looked around and, you know, my tendencies have strongly been with the Green Party for for quite a long time. And, you know, I think it's great. But, you know, the prospect of it getting into government was, well, shall we say, not very high. Um, But here I was coming down to the polling station for the first time really almost in my adult life, and thinking I could vote radically to change things today. If the party I'm voting for is elected, everything could be flipped. But my hope went beyond the excitement of what was in the manifesto, fascinating and and thrilling as that was, because the real source for me was the fact that here is a party now, under Corbyn and MacDonald and the rest, which is open to new ideas. And new ideas is what we so desperately need. Here's a party which is on a a, a deliberate search to find a new way forward, to find a path that can help us find our way through the 21st century with all the horrendous hazards we, we now face. A party which doesn't want to remain stuck wherever it happened to land. And it's that path we so desperately need to find. But my feeling also was that, wonderful as the manifesto was, as a a complete break from the politics of both the Conservatives and the triangulation of New Labour, it was itself, in some respects, for reasons I'll explain in a moment, stuck in the past and that there are all sorts of ways in which it needed to leap over some of the things that were in the foreground and get to a bigger picture beyond. And the reason I felt this was that over the preceding couple of years, I'd had what for me, they might not be for you, but what for me were four revelations, four things which completely transformed my perception of politics. And seeing them now, and they seem so obvious to me, I find it very hard to understand how I couldn't see them before. But we, you know, we all get locked within our own narrow view. People say we have blind spots. We don't. We have perception spots, tiny little pinpoints of light, as everything else around them is darkness. And things are brought into salience by the media or by powerful figures, and we sort of stare at them, and that's all we can see. But all the stuff that surrounds them, all the stuff that's behind them, we miss. But I felt I saw, well, I had another little perception spot, maybe. Sort of four little perception spots, which helped me to see a bigger picture. And the first of these 
was that the politics of at least the last 70 years, and perhaps longer, have been dominated not so much by political leaders or by political parties, but by political stories. That when the Keynesian story, the grand social democratic narrative, um, really began to get traction in the 1940s, it captured political thinking right the way across the, uh, across the spectrum. Conservatives became Keynesians. Republicans became Keynesians. Everyone, as Richard Nixon is reputed to have said, is a Keynesian now. It's remarkable the way in which that idea infected everyone's minds and everyone thought, well, that's the common sense. Of course, that's the way it should be. That's just obvious. It's obvious that this works. And for 30 years or so, that was the dominant political narrative. It didn't matter what your party history was, what the character of your leader was, what your official colours were, you were a Keynesian. And then Keynesianism ran into trouble in the 1970s for various reasons, exogenous and endogenous, as Gordon Brown might say, um, and, and suddenly neoliberalism was on the scene. This um, sort of very uh, virulent, um, extreme form of capitalism um, just swept through. It had been developed, incubated for 30 years or so by people like Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman, Ludwig von Mises and others, and they'd built it and built it, but quietly in the background, and then suddenly, bang, it comes in, in the late 1970s, and overnight almost, everyone became a neoliberal. Labour became neoliberal, the Democrats became neoliberal. Again, regardless of party history, regardless of leader, regardless of colour, they all became neoliberals. So that was the first observation, and perhaps that observation is not so surprising. Perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that it's narratives that dominate politics, because we are creatures of narrative. When we try to make sense of the world, what we look for is not facts and figures. <laughs> Heaven forfend. What we look for is narrative sense. Does this make sense? Is this how we expect people to behave? Is this how we expect the story to develop from the beginning to the middle and the end? Does the hero triumph in the end? It's, it's, our minds are pre-prepared for um, a, a, narrative, a series of narrative structures which we expect to find. And if we find those, they resonate with us. And if we don't, we get confused, and so we look for a story. And if we've got a story, and someone comes along and says, well, that story is actually wrong because the facts say this and the figures say that, we say, sod off, because you're fighting my story. You're attacking my identity that I've adopted because this identity is my story. This is what we find with climate change denial. You know, their story is that this nefarious group of people has sort of stitched everything up for their own ends and so have invented this whole thing of anthropogenic climate change or climate breakdown, as it ought to be called. And, um, and, and you come along and say, well, actually, you're wrong because this paper in Nature says this and this paper in Geophysical Research Letters says this. And they're just like, forget it. You don't get any penetration. All you get is, is enforced denial. Is, is, is reinforced denial be, uh, as you try to contradict that story with facts and figures. The second observation is more interesting. This is that, though they are diametrically opposed to each other, though they hate each other to the roots of their being, social democracy and neoliberalism have exactly the same narrative structure. And the narrative structure is what I call the restoration story. And it goes like this. Disorder afflicts the land, caused by nefarious forces working against the interests of humanity. But the hero, who may be one person, may be a group of people, may be a lot of people, may be an institution, confronts that disorder, overthrows the nefarious forces, and restores order to the land. So, the social de democratic story goes as follows. 
Um, disorder was brought to the land through the workings of the economic elite, who through their laissez-faire economic policies grabbed everything for themselves, the wealth, the power, and beggared the nation through the Great Depression, leaving vast numbers without jobs and without prospects. But the hero of the st story, the enabling state and the people behind it, will restore order by overthrowing that nefarious elite and producing um, a, a paternal system which will provide a strong social safety net, good public services, put money in people's pockets which they can spend back into the economy, thereby generating growth and generating further employment, which is the restoration of order to the land. The neoliberal story says exactly the opposite, but by precisely the same means. And what it says is that disorder has been brought to the land through the nefarious action of the overweening state and its collectivizing tendencies which have crushed human freedom and individuality and, and will eventually inevitably lead to totalitarianism because they don't see our liberty as being important. But the heroes of the story, business and business people, by fighting those collectivizing tendencies and by creating the space to free themselves from tax and regulation will restore order to the land in the form of freedom and choice. They are the same narrative structure. And this led to the third observation, which is that that narrative structure, the restoration story, is common to most successful political transformations and, for that matter, religious revolutions. It is a common element which comes up again and again and again through history. It is one of those stories for which our minds are prepared, which led inexorably to the fourth observation, that the reason we are still stuck with sodding neoliberalism is that we have come up with no new story with which to replace it. The best we can do, and this currently still extends to the Labour Party, though I know it's looking potentially for ways out, is a microwaved version of Keynesianism. Now, Keynesianism has many virtues. It was a work of genius, and, and it made incredible changes to people's lives and brought fantastic progress, particularly through what the French call les trente glorieuses, the, the 30 wonderful years between 1945 and 1975. But there are several reasons why I believe it's not going to take us through the 21st century. The first of those reasons is that what we now call Keynesianism is really nothing of the kind. It's sort of two thin chapters out of the rich old story. Um, a, a bit of, of um, deficit spending um, to get us out of recession um, and um, coupled with investment in public services and the rest of it and manipulation of interest rates in order to boost economies when they require that. All the other elements, such as capital controls, foreign exchange controls, an international clearing union, um, uh, capping um, growing economies so that they don't get out of control, all that stuff isn't even discussed anymore. It's gone clean out of the window. And Keynes was adamant that you could not have the one thing without the other. The package did not work in pieces. You needed the whole package in order for this to work successfully. But what had happened leading up to the 1970s, starting as some very interesting work now shows in the 1950s, was a very effective series of capital strikes, of attacks by capital on the Keynesian model, which eventually demolished capital controls and foreign exchange controls, which were central to it. So that when Nixon susp suspended the convertibility of gold, uh, dollars into gold in 1971, uh, the system was just ripe to come crashing down. There were also what Gordon Brown would call endogenous problems associated with it, such as cost-push inflation and stagflation, uh, which were problems which arose from the model itself. It seems to me too much to hope that capital will unlearn the strategies it deployed against Keynesianism. It also seems to me too much to hope that the model will automatically correct the problems that it ran into in the 1970s. But these are not the main problems with that approach. 
The main problem is this, that everything Keynesianism does to restore employment and to um, restore people's prosperity runs straight head-on into the environmental crisis because the model is based on maintaining rates of growth. It's based on maintaining consumer spending. And that growth and that consumer spending has to continue and continue and continue. And the moment it ceases, the system collapses, which is what happened in the 1970s. But the planet isn't growing. The planet is finite. We cannot continue to grow without running into environmental limits. We are running into those environmental limits already. And it's very interesting, you know, and I speak as a great admirer of Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell. They say wonderful things about the economy and wonderful things about the environment, but never the twain shall meet. And they'll say, yes, you know, we, we, so what we need to do is to reinvest in public services, stimulate consumer demand and all the rest of it. Great, so straight down the line Keynesian stuff. And what we need to do is to tackle climate change and stop the destruction of ecosystems and all the rest of it. And you say, yes, fine. I can see the logic in both statements, but where do they meet? And what I don't see is any attempt to reconcile Keynesianism and its deficit spending and, and consumer stimulus with environmental protection, because it's very hard to see how you can possibly do that. And that alone makes it almost impossible to see how that can be the fit ideology for the 20, 21st century. It was a great one for the 20th century. But an effective politics is about looking forward to a better future rather than back to a better past. Effective politics means producing a new narrative for the times in which we live. A narrative that is pos positive and propositional rather than reactive and oppositional a narrative which tells us where we are, which places us in the present, explains our predicaments and looks towards the future to which we might reach. And it's my belief that until such a narrative comes along, not very much changes. Certain things change, but not the real fundamentals. And when such a narrative comes along, everything changes. You cannot uh, you cannot dissuade someone from their old story until you have a new one with which to replace it. And when the right one comes along, it will infect the minds of people across the political spectrum. So that's all we have to do. A grand new restoration narrative. Oh, and it has to be based in fact, not in bullshit, because there's, we get nowhere that way. It has to have that nice structure, and it has to have a happy ending, and all the rest of it. Um, and it has to guide us through the 21st century. Quite a lot to ask, you might think. But I believe there is one just waiting to be told. And it goes as follows. Over the past few years, there's been a remarkable convergence of findings in a whole range of different academic disciplines. In neuroscience, in psychology, in social sciences, anthropology, evolutionary biology. And they all point to the same remarkable conclusion. That human beings are spectacularly, and this is to quote an article in um, the journal Frontiers in Psychology, are spectacularly unusual when compared to other animals. You might think of all sorts of ways in which we are, but in this respect, they're talking about our capacity for altruism. This is a really bizarre and extraordinary thing about human beings. By comparison to any other species, we are way, way out, off the end of the spectrum when it comes to altruistic behaviour. We also have an extraordinary capacity for empathy and an extraordinary capacity for cooperation. These are the fundamental facts about human beings. And they are intrinsic to our being. We evolved to be like that. And we evolved to be like that because there we were in the African savannas, the slowest and weakest of all the large mammals in a world of horns and tusks and fangs and claws. We were not going to make it alone. We were not going to get out of there if we tried to
to do it by ourselves. The only way we could do it was by developing this extraordinary capacity for cooperation, which had to go beyond mere reciprocation, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, but to a much higher level of a generalised cooperation. I'm going to be nice to everyone in the expectation that everyone's going to be nice to me, because you had to make alliances which leapt over the immediacies that you confronted because our situation was so dire. And so we evolved these hyper-social minds, these extraordinary, weird capacities for altruism and empathy. But the tragedy is, we don't see it like that. And this is where the land has been thrown into disorder to, to, to go to the restoration narrative. We have been induced to believe we're quite the opposite. That we are selfish, grasping, homo economicus is what the economists call us. A lovely article I read said homo economicus is an excellent description of chimpanzees. That's basically how they behave. You grab what you can for yourself and very seldom do you share anything with anyone else. But it's a really bad description of human beings. We just aren't like that. But it's constantly drummed into us, not only that we are, but that we ought to be like that. That extreme individualism, extreme competition is good. Greed is good. Selfishness is good because it'll create a bigger economy and enrich certain people and that wealth will trickle down, as we all know, to enrich everybody else. That's the story we're told. And it's told with such persuasive force that we have absorbed and internalised and reproduced it and have come to believe it ourselves. And it's reinforced by our perceptions because, you know, naturally we are on the lookout for danger all the time. So what becomes salient in our minds is people's really bad behaviour and dangerous behaviour, which we have to avoid. And, the, you know, 1% of the population are reckoned to be psychopaths. Sadly, most of them seem to be in positions of power. Um, but, but the, um, you know, and so there are dangerous people around, there's no doubt about it. But they are not the human norm. For instance, we think of the Charlie Hebdo attacks in Paris, where these two complete lunatics, these dreadful, horrible people, went around murdering innocent people. And we look at that and say, well, aren't human beings terrible? What a bad lot we are. I mean, look, you know, we could do that sort of stuff. We've got it in all of us. Any of us could do that tomorrow. Don't you feel like going around tomorrow with an AK-47 and shooting a few people? Yeah, that's, that's what we believe we are that it's in us, and that we, could, we too could do that. But we forget 3.7 million people came out on the streets of France in protest against that, and in solidarity with the victims, and in saying, this shall not pass. Millions more came out on the streets of other nations in response to the same event, in solidarity with people they had never met. That, my friends, is the human norm. Not those two people, who did that terrible thing, but the millions of people who did that very ordinary human thing. That is what we are. Every day we perform countless acts of altruism so unconsciously that we are unaware we are performing them. Sometimes we perform spectacular ones. My Dutch mother-in-law's family took in a six-year-old Jewish boy during the German occupation and kept him in their house for two years, hid him there. The house next door was occupied by the local German commandant. The street was thick with soldiers and officials at all times. Had they been caught, the whole lot would have been sent to Auschwitz. Why would you do that for a stranger? If we saw any other animal doing anything remotely like that, it would be all over the Daily Mail tomorrow. Oh, look at this, this is weird behavior. I mean, it would be everywhere. We would be astonished, confounded, amazed. We would stand and stare in wonderment. But this is what we are. But that remarkable capacity has been thwarted. Thwarted by various means, thwarted by technology, by changes in the way we work, entertainment and the rest of it, but above all by ideology, by this neo-Hobbesian belief that we are really engaged in a war of all against all that the state of nature is uh, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Whereas, in fact, it is exactly the opposite. And we can, we, the heroes of the story, the ordinary people 
of the land can, not by changing human nature, but by revealing human nature, restore order to the land. And we do so by doing that thing we are so spectacularly good at, which is cooperating. Part of this transformation, and Labour is already a long way along this road, it just hasn't fitted it into the narrative structure yet. Part of this transformation is building community, rebuilding politics and rebuilding society from the ground up. And what that means, part of the, that, what that means, is creating what's called a participatory culture community projects, which more and more people join until they turn in, they coalesce into what people call thick networks. An example is what happened in Rotterdam uh, with a project called De Lis Al, the, the reading room, which um, started in a disused Turkish bathhouse and they created this community hub. There was a reading room, there was a cafe, there were one or two other things that you could do. It proliferated. It spawned other enter enterprises and community projects and proliferated and proliferated, generating 1,300 projects involving a large part of the population of Rotterdam. Did I, say, I said Rotterdam before. No, it is Rotterdam. Um, and, um, and, and there comes, according to a study by the London Borough of Lambeth, there comes a tipping point beyond which suddenly it is the norm to be involved and it's abnormal not to be involved and, and everyone wants to participate and it sort of breaks out of the sort of Facebook urbanism ghetto of the middle classes and then boom, becomes general and normal. And if you nudge the process by introducing community projects which are really easy to join, low commitment, um, low skills, um, where you might, for instance, do childcare together or a bit of cooking together or mending clothes together with a bit of help from people, you can start to bring in people from all walks of life from the very beginning and start to make community, which we talk about so much, into a reality. But it needs, I believe, far more than this. And a true community needs a community economy. And one of the mistakes we all make, I've made it many times myself, Labour makes it, the Conservatives make it, everybody makes it, is to talk about the political choices that confront us and the economic choices that confront us as if there were only two economic sectors. It's the state versus the market. You know, probably most people in this room say we want more state and less market. We want the market constrained by regulation and taxation. We want more state ownership of essential public services. If you're talking to a party of neo, a group of neoliberals or conservatives, they'll say we want less state and more market. We want the market free from regulation and taxation. We want people allowed to do whatever they want, uh, and that will create more economic growth than the rest of it. But both sides are wrong, because there aren't just two economic sectors, there are four principal sectors. There is the market, there is the state, there is the household, and there is the commons. But we only ever talk about the first two. And this leads to a whole series of problems. Take, for instance, sector three, the household, or maybe it should be sector one. Some people call it the core economy. This economy provides a massive subsidy for the rest of the economy, to the state and the market. A huge subsidy because of the unpaid labour of people who are bringing up children, who are taking them to school, who are keeping them fed and watered, without whom there'd be no economy at all, because those children are the future workforce. People who are caring for those who are ill or elderly or have disabilities and helping them and supporting them, without whom the cost for the state would be unsupportable. This is a huge unpaid subsidy being provided largely by women. Still, despite the gains of feminism, it is mostly women who are the carers, and so their work is systematically undervalued, unrecognised even, in economic terms. There's a wonderful book by Catherine Marcel called um, Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner? And, and what, it, what it reveals is that while the great man was writing The Wealth of Nations and talking about the state versus the market and all the rest of it, his mother was slaving away 
making his dinners and making his bed and washing his clothes and mending his clothes and doing all the things without which he wouldn't be able to function at all and we would have no wealth of nations. Her contribution and that of women in general and that of the household economy in general was completely left out of the wealth of nations. He was sort of writing as if none of this stuff was happening while the invisible hands of his mother were doing all the work. Um, so, so that's one sector we neglect, but the other, the commons. Look, I have to explain the commons. This is how little we are aware of this. The sector of the economy, which was once the dominant one, but has been attacked ruthlessly and relentlessly by both state and by market. And the commons consists of three elements. It consists of a resource, which might be land or water or the internet or software or hardware or knowledge. It consists of the community which manage that resource and sustain it, and it consists of the rules and the negotiations which that community sets up in order to sustain and allocate that resource. So it has those three elements. It is inalienable, it shouldn't be sold or given away, it will belong to that community in perpetuity or until someone grabs it, um, and it's not there to produce the accumulation of capital or profit, but to produce sustained prosperity or well-being. It's completely different to either state or market. It's a totally different sector. But despite the best efforts of people like Eleanor Ostrom, it's perennially ignored and neglected. We don't even see it. And what it has been subject to is a perpetual process of enclosure, which is a polite word for theft. And enclosure was originally used to describe the seizure of land, the common land, which the common people used for their subsistence. They lived on it. They survived from it. The, the land grabbers, the, um, these uh, people often supported by state power with a great deal of violence at their disposal, threw everyone else off the land and said, this land is mine. Trespassers will be prosecuted. Everybody else sold off to the slums and the cities where you belong. That's where so much of our inequality comes from. That's why we have a rentier economy, because having grabbed the land and all the other resources which they grab, they can then sit back and say, right, we're going to charge you for access. It's why we have to pay so much for housing. Why you have to pay so much for a whole lot of things which were not created by anyone, not invented by anyone, or if they were, were created by a whole lot of people working together, but they were grabbed and stolen by one person or one corporation. And this process is continuing today um, through the attempt to destroy net neutrality, for example, in order to sort of uh, extract more and more wealth from the internet that all of us have helped to create. We've created its value. Um, through um, the um, attempt in trade agreements uh, to extend intellectual property so that they can grab genetic material, they can grab plant breeds, they, they can um, grab chemicals um, which naturally occurring in the environment and say this is ours and ours alone. Even academic publishers are at it, grabbing the research produced by communities of scientists, putting a bloody great paywall in front of it and saying you have to pay $50 to read one article in our Elsevier or Science Direct um, website. Outrageous, simple, straightforward, daylight robbery, theft to create a rentier economy through enclosure. And it seems to me that to make sense of community, to turn it into a living, viable, meaningful proposition, we need a commons, we need a community economy owned and run by the community and nobody else. And let's take the fundamental resource, land, to see how this might work. So at the moment we have a situation where a few people have grabbed the land, charge everyone else an absolute fortune. The value of that land is massively increased by our tax money paying for schools and hospitals and roads and water systems and electricity and all the other things which make land in some locations worth a lot of money and in other locations worth much less. It's us who have made that value. What I suggest is, and by no means the only one suggesting this, is that we levy a swinging land value tax, or a better term for it would be a community land contribution. Because actually it's not a tax, it's just trying to reclaim some of the money which we keep pouring into the pockets of these people who then pour it out into Panama. Um, and that, uh, that, that money 
goes primarily to the local community. The, the government, local and central government can tax it, and depending on the wealth of that community um, will determine how much tax they take, both to support local services and to distribute wealth from rich communities to poor ones. But the residue remains in the hands of the community through a commons trust, a, a land trust which the community would set up, and the community members then decide how it can be used. And one of the uses to which they might put it is to buy land. Land which has now become a lot cheaper because it's being taxed and so its value to the private owner diminishes considerably. You start buying the land on which your community depends, then you become the beneficial owner and you can start harvesting its value for the good of all rather than for the good of one person who shoves it away in Panama. Um, and, and then you start having to have rich community engagement and negotiations. They won't always go smoothly. There will be conflicts over, you know, do we want a new playing field or a new toilet or um, are we going to um, um, uh, spend uh, 200 grand on a library or on a youth centre? These are good problems to have. You know, it's, it's a nice thing to be able to argue about how all this money is going to be allocated, this great wealth. Or you could say, are we going to pay ourselves all a dividend from this, a sort of basic income, a community basic income. Another nice problem to have, to have um, uh, that wealth, that wealth which should and did belong to us, once more to argue over. And it makes community, it makes democracy in its purest form. And it shows us how we can start to create a true democracy at the national level as well. Because you can't do everything just from the bottom up, important as that is. You also need to change things from the top down. And it seems to me that there are several major changes which are just urgently needing to be made. The most obvious one is to get the money out of politics. At the moment, it is so easy to buy political results, to put, keep, put politicians in your pockets, to get a law removed or changed, um, to get tax reduced, that we don't really live in a democracy at all. It would be more accurate to call this a plutocracy. It is outrageous that we still have a situation where, while the amount that a party can spend on, on political campaigning is capped, the individual contribution that rich people can make is uncapped. They can spend as much as they like, and they can spend money and get a 100-fold return from it. You, you, we'll give you a million quid, but you've got to get rid of that regulation. You get rid of that regulation, suddenly my business is worth loads more. And there's what I call the pollution paradox at work here, which is that the companies and the millionaires who have the greatest interest in spending money on politics are those with the dirtiest businesses because those are the businesses most subject to regulation and that clash most obviously with, with democracy. And when I say dirtiest, I don't just mean in environmental terms. I mean banks using toxic financial vehicles, gambling companies, um, companies treating their workers like shite, uh, sports direct, you know, you, you can go on and on. You know, you, we all know the sort of toxic practices that I'm talking about. Those are the ones with the greatest interest in playing the political system and putting money in. So those are the ones to which the political system responds and they come to dominate politics. The worst practices, the worst individuals, the worst companies dominate political life because of the funding system. And it seems to me that there's an extremely obvious way of sorting this out, which is to say that every political party can charge a certain amount for membership, not a large amount, say 20 pounds a year for full membership. But the state will match that spending at a fixed ratio. There's no other form of political funding allowed. So if you want to enhance your political funding, you need more members. And if you want more members, oh, you need to re-engage with people and respond to what people want rather than what your business chums want, rather than what your old school friends want, rather than what your mate from Eton wants. You have to re-engage with the population as a whole to boost your membership. And people say, well, that's going to cost a lot of money. Oh, yeah, it'll cost the state about £50 million for a general election. But not having that system costs us 
hundreds of billions. The financial crisis was the result of not having that system because the banks lobbied and spent their money on making sure they were deregulated. And what happens? Bang! The whole thing comes crashing down because they're not regulated. The environmental crisis, which just destroys all our prospects, is the result of that system because you can just buy your way out of regulation. You can't even measure that in terms of money. It goes beyond money. It goes into areas that money can't possibly measure because our deaths and that of the biosphere cannot be redeemed for money. Economists, please note. Um, and, and so that's step one, reform the funding system. Step two, reform the electoral system. We're still languishing under first-past-the-post in this system, which means in that some elections, the only people politicians bother to talk, talk to are the 400,000 floating voters in marginal constituencies. The rest of us might as well not exist. We can bog off and go to hell as far as they're concerned because our concerns are not of interest to them because we can't get them elected. Our votes are wasted. That's outrageous. We need a proportional representation system, ideally with a single transferable vote. But even if we had such reforms, even if we made this a much better representative system, I don't believe that is enough. I think that representation has to be tempered with participation. Because at the moment, we have a situation where a government of any colour will say, right, I won the election, therefore I have a mandate to do whatever I want for the next five years. And whether it was in the manifesto or not in the manifesto, or whether it was in the manifesto but on page 94 where nobody noticed, where everybody was voting for something else, you claim a mandate for all of that stuff that was in the manifesto. And anyone who tries to challenge you on that, uh, you say, no, no, but we were elected. You, know, you might not like what we're doing, but we were elected, so, so sorry, tough. Oh, and by the way, if you want to change the political system, why don't you stand for election? So fine, okay, well that means that there's a valid role between elections for 600 people in this country. And the rest of the 60 million, we have no valid role. Well, that's a ridiculous situation. It might have been almost acceptable in an age when the quill pen was the f fastest way of administration and the horse was the fastest means of transport. But in the digital era, it is completely outrageous that they should pull such a thing on us and that they should invalidate our political activity for every day of the year except one day every five years. It's absolute madness. Why can't we refine our political choices? Why can't we decide on particular issues? Now, I admit we've not had an entirely comfortable relationship with referenda in this country, but that's because we've done it in the most stupid imaginable way. So, number one, take the most complex issue you could possibly take. An issue which nobody understands, least of all the government, as it's amply demonstrating at the moment. Number two, monumentally misinform people about it for several years running. Number three, put them in a polling booth with a simple binary choice about this fantastically complex existential issue which will dominate the rest of your lives and probably screw it up one way or the other, uh, yes or no. <laughs> so we all know what people voted against. We haven't the faintest idea what they voted for. Did we vote to stay in the single market, but not the rest of it? Did we vote to stay in the customs union? Did we vote to stay in the EEA? What have we voted for? Nobody knows, because we were unable to refine our choice. It's madness. Why can't we have a multiple choice referendum? If we had a referendum which said, here are all the options and here are the implications, you have to then think about it. You have to find out what those things mean. You have to actually engage with the political process rather than going, oh, I don't know, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, uh, yes, <laughs> you know, no, whatever. Um, and, and you can refine your choices once you're treated like an intelligent adult, you can respond like an intelligent adult. But if you're treated like a pigeon in a Skinner box, red button, green button, you behave like a pigeon in a Skinner box. You know, I could go on and on about refinements to the system, but you know, we're all thinking, well, fine, you know, you've got your utopia, you've built your castle in the air. How on earth do we get there? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I would say we are halfway here already. Because what 
you guys are doing right now is exactly the model which is going to take us to where we need to get. What we've seen with both momentum in the UK and the Sanders campaign in the US is the development of a very similar organising model. And yep, we've, you've been talking to each other and helping each other develop that model, but there's also been some independent development of it as well. And this model, in the US at least, is called big organising. The traditional means of trying to get people elected or create political change or in Hillary Clinton and Tony Blair's case stopping political change is to um, use big data and big money. Get as much money as possible, hire as big a staff as possible, get a massive great database, get them working through it and target particular sectors, particularly the floating voters in marginal constituencies and home in on them. The big organising model is exactly the opposite. And many of you, I mean, you know, I'm teaching my, um, my grand, grand person to suck eggs in this case because uh, many of you will be very well aware of, of, of the way this is done. But the big organising model starts by saying, we're going to give you something worth fighting for, worth spending your time on, worth devoting much of your life to. We're going to give you change, a prospect of change, which is so great that you are going to make it happen because you are going to want to make it happen and you will stop at nothing to make it happen. We're not going to give you incrementalism. We're not going to give you triangulation. We're not going to be lost in the perpetual Bermuda triangulation in which politics has been lost for so long. We are going to give you something real and transformative. That's step one. And step two is we are going to give you the responsibility for making that happen. We're not going to remove ourselves into an enclave, uh, uh, spadbot mannequins with clipboards and suits sitting on Douglas Alexander's sofa, uh, deciding, deciding which marginal voter we're going to target in this constituency. No, we're going to hand most of the process to volunteers. This is the core of big organising. And while there's still going to be central organisation and we're going to be passing out ideas and strategies and, and structure from the centre, we're going to delegate much of the work which is customarily reserved for staff to volunteers. And anyone who says that volunteers can't organise things hasn't been to the world transformed. Yes. Isn't this amazing? All this without a salary being paid to anyone, without a fee being paid to anyone. It's just happened through the goodwill and altruism, the altruism of volunteers. People doing it not just for themselves, they're not acting as homo economicus, they're acting as human beings. Human beings trying to help not just themselves but everyone get a better life, even people who aren't yet born have a better life. That's how extraordinary we are. And if you need any evidence of that, you are it. So um, what you do then is you allow those volunteers to take on those roles and then train other volunteers to take on those roles, who in turn train other volunteers. You have these proliferating networks. And with the Sanders campaign, it started with this guy who had 3% name recognition. He was dismissed by the media as just a joke, an antiquated throwback to another age. We can just forget all about him. They started with nothing, this tiny kernel of people but with a lot of goodwill because he promised real change. And then it spread and it spread and it spread. But according to Becky Bond and Zach Exley in their book Rules for Revolutionaries, very interesting, um, they said that they only really stumbled on the eventual strategy in about the last month of the campaign. Had they got there earlier, they would have clinched it. And they so nearly did it, so frustrating, because I'm convinced that if Sanders had got the nomination, Trump wouldn't have stood a chance. Yeah. Because Sanders, like Corbyn, spoke to people. He spoke to people where they were, where they were at. He spoke the language of feeling. He understood what was happening to people. Whereas Clinton, like Blair, like Owen Smith, God bless him, and others, 
was just in a different sphere altogether. They just weren't there. They weren't tuning in. They weren't engaged with people. And Trump could stomp in with his demagoguery and claim to be speaking, he was certainly speaking the language of feeling because he didn't have any coherent language of, of thought to speak. And people thought, oh, this guy's talking our language because he's saying those words that we say. Well, Sanders could have said that, he did say that, he was saying that with the thinking that went behind it, with the big picture, a rather old picture, a picture which I feel needs badly to be updated, but a picture of real transformational change. And his network of volunteers um, rose to 100,000, organized 100,000 events, and spoke directly to 75 million people. Had it gone on for another six weeks, they would have spoken to every adult in America. Now, in Britain, in April, Labour had six weeks. Six weeks to turn around what seemed to be a completely hopeless situation. And I was you know, aware of what Momentum had been doing. I'd just read this book by um, uh, Becky Bond and Zach Exley. And I made this video for The Guardian in April saying, um, or beginning of May, saying, look, if, if, if Labour does this thing over here, this same big organising technique, yeah, it's a very short amount of time, but it might stand a chance. And, I mean, I always get some pretty crap comments under my columns, as you can imagine, but this, a torrent of abuse and mockery, had to be seen to be believed. It just seemed completely preposterous. And, and after reading all those comments, I thought, oh, maybe it was completely preposterous. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, there I am, off on one again, trying to sort of seek out that thing they talk about in the books and films and not quite finding it. But I did try. I did try to raise some hopes. I'll just clear off then. <laughs> and then I saw it happening. And I saw this incredible mobilization. I saw you doing this incredible mobilization. I saw people reaching out and spreading and the, and the volunteer network proliferating and reaching parts of the country which no one else was able to reach and speaking to people. And then the manifesto was leaked and bang, everything began to turn around because you had those two elements coming together. And this great proliferation started and, well, it was the greatest surprise in British political history. And again, a few more weeks, Corbyn would have clinched it. No trouble at all. They were, you were just getting going. Labour was just getting going by the time of the election. And it was so close. And next time it won't be close at all. Next time it's going to be a walkover. But the key thing in my mind is to ally that fantastically powerful technique with a powerful new political narrative. Because it's no good doing this fantastic mobilisation, building up this amazing hope, bringing in an amazing government of great people, if we just go back to the old stories. If we go back to the stories which cannot get us through the 21st century because they are almost automatically destined to crash into our major predicament, which is the environmental crisis. We need the whole new story to go alongside the whole new form of organising. And my friends, I submit that if we achieve that, we become unstoppable. Thank you.